Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And this week we are doing what we like to call book report style episodes. So especially this week, as much as we try to give you guys as many facts as we can and we really do our research, it's not always going to be 100% factual and accurate. Yeah, I mean, we are doing it to the best of our ability, but when it comes to historical figures from... You know, the 1700s, the 18th century, which is what we're focusing on today. Yeah. The details can be fuzzy and vary from site to site. So it's not for lack of trying. Yeah. Um, but if you are a history major and maybe you know a lot about these people and it sounds like our interpretations aren't 100% correct, send us an email. Like, let us know because yeah. we are always open to learning more and learning new things. But um, we hope we've done justice to these wonderful women that we're yeah. going to talk about today. So today we are talking about women of the revolution. Yes. And we both chose people who are not wives of presidents or political figures, which I feel like is what most people think of when they think of like founding mothers mm-hmm. would be like the wives of the founding fathers. So I think it's kind of cool that we took our own interpretation of what we see as being a founding mother, not just being the wife of somebody. Yeah. And being yeah. somebody who really um, made a mark by themselves and on their own. Yeah. And I know who you're doing this week because yes, we were going to do the same person. We almost had a Topanga moment, <laughs> moment again. again. <laughs> um, but we discovered that a while back, so I changed my person. And I think what's cool about both of the people that we're doing, they're both trailblazers. Yeah. You know. We so. love our trailblazers. We sure do. If we you're, love them. If you're doing something, if you're a woman who's doing something like new, maybe like not a lot of other women have done before or yeah. at all, we want to know about your story. We yeah. Tell I feel it. like we're both very gravitated. We gravitate toward those stories yeah. so much. It did not surprise me at all that we both chose the same person yeah. at all because <laughs> it was the first link I clicked when I looked up Founding Mothers and that was the one that like when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to know everything about this person. Yeah. And I was like, okay, Keegan's totally, like that was totally her thought process too, I'm sure. Yeah. So I'm going to go first this week. Suck it, Keegan. Um, (laughs) Thank you. That's very sweet of you. Yeah, because I love you, you know? Um, And this woman, her name is Deborah Sampson. Her married name is Gannett. I have lovingly nicknamed her Deb because it's really annoying uh, to write Deborah a lot. Yeah, and especially so, it's like Deborah. It's not even like Deborah. 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 Deborah Samson. Uh, she's really rad. When I was talking to my friends about her last night at the bar, I was like, she's like the American Mulan. Yes, and of which there are a lot. Like, I feel like we could dedicate an entire episode to women who have done this because. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that there were a lot in the Civil War as well, but particularly in the American Revolution. I don't know about... I know a lot of women who fought in the American Revolution uh, in one way or another, like took their husband's place or whatever, but I don't know a lot of women who did what she did as far as the Mulan aspect of it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't let you tell. Yeah. All right. So let's start from the beginning. She was born on December 17th, 
my boyfriend's birthday, mm-hmm. 1760 in Plimpton, Massachusetts. Her father's name was Jonathan Sampson. Her mother was uh, Deborah. Where's her last name again? Because it's cool. Deborah Bradford. So her mom was the great granddaughter of William Bradford, who was the governor of Plymouth County. And he actually emigrated to Plymouth Colony on the Mayflower in 1620. And he was governor for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So they kind of they come from like a very patriotic American background. Uh, she had six siblings. She was one of seven. There was Jonathan, Alicia, Hannah. I'm going to say these two names wrong. Ephraim? Ephraim. Ephraim. Yeah, I knew an Ephraim. Nehemiah. Nehemiah? Nehemiah, thank you. And Sylvia. I can say that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... Deb was told that her father, again, I wrote Deb a lot in my notes, you guys. Deb was told that her father was lost at sea, but he most likely abandoned the family. He took a common law wife. It was found in another, you know, area, another County. colony. And uh, took a common law wife named Martha and popped out two more kids. Fun fact, in 1770, someone named Jonathan Sampson was indicted for murder in Maine, which is where they think that Jonathan went. Uh, so it's thought that that was possibly him, although uh-huh. there's there's really no records that state that that's a fact. There was no, like, biographical details of this particular yeah. And we're talking, defendant. like, we're talking, what year was that? 1770. Yeah, so we're talking, like, the 1700s when every other man was named Jonathan. Jonathan, like, yeah. Like, literally every man was yeah, named yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, Jonathan Sampson, you know, right. in, in Maine, which is yes. where he, they think that he went. So I just, I wanted to add that in because I thought it was kind of a, a fun fact. Oh, yeah, anytime we can incorporate murder. Oh, wait. Let's right? do that. The bloodier, the better. <laughs> so Jonathan latered out of there and left Mama Deborah with all these like seven children and wasn't able to provide at all for her children and her family. So something that was very common to do at this time and for a long time afterwards, and I feel like even still today, is they would just like give their children away to different family members and friends. So Deborah's mom, Mama Deb. <laughs> Uh, kind of passed her off to a close relative. But she, the mom, died shortly after uh, she and Deborah were separate, separated. Just bleak times. Like, all Super of this, bleak. All of this reads like a Dickens novel, you know what I mean? Oh, it's, it's just, like, just oh. it's one shit show after another. Like, and I believe no... her father as well, like, he had a drinking problem, I think, I'm sure is, he did. like, part of that. So it was just like, he Everyone. was drinking all the time, she's got a million siblings, he leaves, then she gets sent off to live with relatives, and her mom dies. Yeah, it's just, it's really, really tragic. And so, I don't know why, but because her mom died, she couldn't, she no longer lived with that relative. So they, like, passed her off to this Reverend Peter Thatcher's widow. I don't understand. I don't get this part. It's very, like... Muddy to I me. actually think that this was semi-common, um, having where, read a lot of, like, 18th like, century literature. Okay, I think, so is that something where if the mom dies, you just pass them on again? Well, I don't know that that was necessarily the case. I think it depends on the wealth of the relative that she was living with. So it's Do quite Do you think possible. the relative just passed her along again? Because maybe now that the mom was gone, she was like, oh, you're not my responsibility anymore? I mean, I think that there's always possibility that that's it. I think it's also possible that financially they weren't equipped really to right. to hang on to her anymore. Exactly. So she's like, well, your mom's not here to, to yeah. tell me I can't do this. So she's passed on to send, she was sent to this like Reverend Peter Thatcher's widow whose name was Mary Prince Thatcher. 
As an indentured servant, though, I believe. No, no, right? no, not yet. Oh, okay, my bad. She gets she continually gets passed around. So at this time, this Mary Prince Thatcher was in her eighties. Uh, her husband, who had passed, uh, supported the American Revolution and helped draft the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780. So again, she was passed on to like very patriotic people. This is an older woman um, who you know has seen a lot of America and the colonies kind of. Developing over time. Right. So she is she really has like a sense of patriotism from a very young age. So historians believe that she learned to read and write while living with Thatcher, most likely by reading the Bible. When Thatcher died, Deb was sent to work as an indentured servant for the family of Jeremiah Thomas in Middleborough. And she worked as an indentured servant from ten to eighteen. So this is she was ten when she was like when Thatcher died, the widow. So she was in her was sent third to placement at ten. At ten years so old. So she'd been bounced around her entire her entire young childhood. life. Like yeah. this is not like a normal childhood at all whatsoever. And also, what I would imagine being around older people and probably not being very socialized with children, she probably did have a real sense of maturity and um, was probably very stoic. She probably had a certain air about her. Well, Um, yeah, I mean, in in having done, like, my research when I thought I was going to do her, um, she also was, by most accounts, pretty plain like you know oh, not I get beautiful. in I get into that yeah, in the traditional sense which I think yeah. may have also kept her from being like as socialized you right. know in that time period we, we gonna get into that sexist uh shaming that that people talk about her looks because it was very upsetting to me so apparently she was treated pretty well by Jeremiah Thomas I watched the drunk history episode of this mm-hmm. and um she was like, oh, yeah, he taught her all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, that didn't happen. He was pretty sexist. He was a sexist pig who didn't believe that girls should get an education, which was common back then. That was then. standard for the time. I know, but still, come on. But she learned from Jeremiah's sons who would share their schoolwork with her. That worked, though, because at the age of 18, when she was done uh, with her time as an indentured servant, she worked as a teacher during the summer and a weaver in the winter. So she was, uh, she was very skilled at sewing it's also reported that she was really skilled in woodworking and mechanics. Like, she would build things and invent things, and she was just super, super smart, really good with her hands. So now we're going to get into what our Deb looked like. And I wrote, I promise this is important to the story. I would never body shame you, girl. <laughs> uh, she was 5'9". She was 5 feet 9 inches tall. And the average woman at the time was 5 feet tall, and the average man was between 5'6 and 5'8". So she is taller than the average man right, right now. And um, her biographer, Herman Mann, who had known her, writes, Her waist might displease a coquette. Is it coquette or coquet? Coquette, I think. Okay. Her waist might displease a coquette. And I wrote, fuck you, buddy. He also wrote that she had small breasts, again, what the fuck, and bound them with linen to hide them during years in uniform. I understand why they're saying it, but there's something so, like, when somebody is dead and you're a biographer and you're writing, I don't know, there's something very, like, I wouldn't want someone writing about my boobs. Well, but I think it's imp- I think it's it's important, important because to the story. right I, think it I is get important. it and I I I don't and that's why I included having, it yeah I don't begrudge him having written about that because those are the questions that you have when you talk about women who impersonated men to be uh, to break the law essentially 
I just those feel like, questions I think are are questions that you have right away, which is how would you disguise like, your I think her, her physical appearance is so important it's in understanding really important. how she got away with this for so long. Yeah, it's really important. I just wish I don't know. I feel like today, hopefully it would have maybe been phrased differently. Well, well it absolutely would have been phrased differently. But it still would have been discussed, I'm sure. Yeah. Somebody else says the features of her face are regular, but not what a physiognomist would term the most beautiful so it to me it's like it's just reading all this it's like okay we get it i get it i get it i get it she's pl- she's plain looking like it just felt like they're nailing it on the head you know like remember she's really not that good looking it's like okay shut up like <laughs> it was just kind of annoying um so her features as we were saying she was tall she was broad strong she wasn't like typically feminine and that really did help her disguise as a man so in 1782 she dressed in men's clothes and joined the army in middleborough with the name timothy thayer she was recognized by a local while she was enlisting and was not able to like complete her enlistment but then oh and this is also important to note so she was part of a baptist church Mm -hmm. and when the baptist church found out they withdrew uh their fellowship with her so basically the members shunned her until she would like apologize and ask for forgiveness and she was like fuck you i'm not gonna do that so she enlisted again in 1782 under the name Robert Shirtliff, which is the name that you're going to know. That's the name that she had for the rest of her time in service. And she joined the Light Infantry Company and 4th Massachusetts Regiment under command of George Webb. This unit consisted of 50 or 60 of the most elite men and one woman. (laughs) Um, They were chosen because they were taller, they were stronger, they were, like, they were above average in military skill, basically. So that's amazing. And this really helped her kind of remain disguised, because no one's going to think that this amazing fighter at the time would be a woman. It wouldn't even, it it wouldn't even occur to them that it could possibly be a woman. Yeah, there was no way that it could have possibly occurred to them that someone in an elite, in an elite unit would be a woman. Um, and then, you know, along with that, when we talk about her physical appearance, yeah, there was nothing inherently for at the time, like what they would have specified as being very feminine, feminine yeah. about her because she was so like sturdy and tall and broad shouldered. And, yeah. you know, like they just didn't question that at all. Well, and she like, she probably was pretty like, like, I feel like back then, you know, they they really wanted their men to be very stoic, and, like, that's why I mentioned earlier, like, with the way she her was raised, her personality mm-hmm. was probably very reserved, you know, she probably didn't draw a lot of attention to herself, yeah. and, you know, men are very private, especially at this time, so maybe, like, that privacy that she had just kind of amplified her manliness, yeah. anyways, you know? So... Their job in this uh, part of the army was to cover for advancing regiments and protected the rear attacks and scouted the surrounding area from the enemy. So basically they were like befriending the biggest bat and baddest for Mm -hmm. protection. Deb's first battle was on July 3rd, 1782. She was 22 years old outside of Terrytown, New York. She took two musket balls to the thigh and a cut in her forehead. Her like fellow soldiers of course, came running up to her like, oh my gosh, we had to take you to the hospital. And she was like, nope, not going to the hospital. But they were like, fuck you, you you're going to the hospital. And (laughs) like, forehead's bleeding. Like, you know, (laughs) put her over their back and like brought her to the hospital. And they fixed her head wound and she like pieced out of there before they could get to her pants and like her leg. Right. So she took a fucking pen knife 
yeah. and removed. Yeah, this cringed me out real hard. The musket ball from <sighs> her thigh. Imagine <sighs> it. Just, just let that marinate. No, I've done it. I've, I've just, imagined it, mm, and it is so gross. Ooh, so badass. But she couldn't get the other one, so one of them was left in there because it was too far in, and that leg never fully healed because of it. Okay, so after that, she. Oh, and then she sewed herself up with a fucking sewing needle. She's yeah. like, I know she how to sew. Fuck yeah. It's like, oh my God, so badass. Like, that's so fucking metal. I love it. So in April of 1783, she spent seven months with General John Patterson. And that was her last general that she worked for. After the Battle of Yorktown, they thought the war would be over. But no peace treaty had been signed, so the Continental Army stayed in uniform. And Patterson's soldiers were sent to Philadelphia, basically to kind of like suppress some of the protesters who were mad about, like, not getting their payments or being discharged and things like that. So she wasn't really fighting at this time, but she was kind of just, like, trying to keep the peace a bit. Yeah, she was kind of acting as a peace officer. Yeah, exactly. So that summer she became really ill, and she was cared for by Dr. Barnabas Binney. Oh, I love that name. Dr. Barnabas Binney. Barnabas Binney. At first, when I first was doing research on this and I read that name, I was like, this sounds like a villain. (laughs) <laughs> but but it's I mean, not. it's not. No. Okay, she's really fucking sick. So she's laying on the bed and probably can't protest too much to, like, dude, don't take my clothes off and, like, inspect me. So when he, like, takes her shirt off to see, like, what's going on, he notices the binding around mm-hmm. her chest and her gender is revealed. So instead of going to the officer in charge and reporting her, he just, like, sends her to live with his wife and daughters and a nurse to nurse her back to health. So that, to me, I think is amazing. Yeah, because he could have turned her in. Revolutionary allyship at its finest. I love it. So November 3rd, 1783 was the date that they were going to be starting to, like, release some of these soldiers. She was feeling much better. So uh, Dr. Binney, Dr. Bonavis Binney, Mm -hmm. asked Deborah to pass along a note to Patterson. She knew the note would be revealing her gender, and she was right. Instead of being punished, Patterson gave her an honorable discharge, a note of advice, and enough money to travel home. So, like, this, the best circumstances that could have possibly yeah, happened in out this, of this situation. in this time period. Yes, yeah. because this could have gone really fucking horribly wrong. So, she was discharged on October 25th, 1783, after a year and a half of service. The official record of Deborah Gannett's service as Robert Shirtliff from May 20th to 1780, wait, from May 20th, 1782 to October 25th, 1783 appears in the Massachusetts Soldiers and Sailors of the Revolutionary War series, which is super badass. After the war, Deb married Benjamin Gannett. Benjamin Gannett is my (laughs) name. He was a farmer from Massachusetts. They had three kids. Earl, Mary, and Patience. I love the name Patience. How beautiful is I that? I knew Patience, but... Okay, I guess I won't say her last name, but I'll tell you later, because her last name was so... Actually, no, I'll tell you, and I'll bleep it out. Yeah. Um, her name was Patience... Oh, and no! And I was like, oh, but if that's your last name, oh, I don't know that you should go with Patience... <laughs> Poor girl! Baby! Okay. Um, They also adopted an orphan, Susanna Baker Shepherd, and, like... 
I'm sorry, but they did not have the means to be having no. this many kids. I'm like, girl, what are you doing? Like, you have no money. Don't but you? You know that her heart was in the right place. I as know, far as, like, I t- and I totally get it. I so understand it. Like, I would be the same way because she was passed along from person to person. So, so seeing I can an imagine, orphan, yeah, I can imagine that she wanted to provide stability. I. 100 yeah. percent get it i yeah. totally get it but at the same time i'm like girl you're poor as fuck the reason that they were poor as fuck was because they were farmers but their land was really small and it wasn't very prosperous it wasn't doing very well right it was his family land yes. so it's not like they went out and chose a plot of land that yes. wasn't like, it was kind of like given to them yeah it was inherited it was grandfathered in essentially yep, exactly so they were just constantly on the edge of poverty and she was a woman and didn't receive any of her pension at this time right. for the military she was although i, I don't know if you said this, she was honorably discharged. She was from, honorably discharged from the yeah. army, yes. which is saying something because they really could have dishonorably discharged her. Totally, because her entire time in service was a lie, a lie, yeah, and illegal. Yeah, so um, they did give her the honor of honorably discharging I, her. Yeah, definitely. So that's great, but she also wasn't given any money. So nine years later, in 1792, after being discharged, she petitioned for the pay that she earned from the army. And it was being withheld because she's a woman, as we said. Legislation granted her petition, and John motherfucking Hancock signed it. Yeah. Like, can you imagine? Yeah. Like, just... You had the actual John Hancock you on your piece of paper? You had an actual fucking John Hancock on your piece of paper. Whenever I say Hancock, it always just sounds like hand job to me. Hancock. Hancock. If you say it like that. John Hancock. All right, she was awarded 34 pounds plus interest. Not super great, but something, right? But something, and I think... It's helpful. I wonder what that would be in 2018 dollars. I have a lot of, uh, for the rest of the dollar amounts that she gets, I have it translated to today. That one okay. I do not. So, all right, in 1802, she began to give lectures about her time in the army. And at first I thought I was reading this wrong, but I think this is this is how it was uh, written that in the beginning of her lecture, she would, like, praise traditional gender roles for women. Right. And then in the second half, she would come out in her full military gear and do, like, really difficult drills and ceremony things. At first, I was like, wait, wouldn't she have been, like, talking against gender roles? But I think the fact that she was like, oh, women belong at home, blah, 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 and then did the exact opposite at the end kind of shows... Well, here was my understanding whenever I was doing research for that. I think that she did, because it said more than once in several articles that I read that she did totally praise traditional gender roles after her time in the military, and I think it, and she used that later on, which I'm sure you'll get to, whenever she had her friend Paul Revere start Mm -hmm. writing letters trying to advocate to get her more money, Yeah, where he would use that as a, I think she knew how to play the game, so he he would use that as, like, she understands her place, she she wears women's clothing, she does all the traditional things that women and wives and mothers are supposed to do, Um, so she deserves to, you know, be given, like, her fair due. But I think it's cool that she still came out in her uniform at the end and, like... And it was also my under- it was also my understanding that that is how she made money too. It is how like, she made money. Yeah, she would make additional yeah. money because it was kind of a curiosity. It was an oddity to see yes. a woman be able to do these really difficult drill routines. Yeah, exactly. So it it is kind of an interesting game that she was playing, still showing that look, I'm powerful enough to be able to do these things. But, again, still playing the game of of what people wanted to hear, that I understand. Right, and I think there was probably some truth to both of those, you know, those dualities in in her, Uh as a woman of her time and product of of that time. Totally. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, 
She did this to earn money to justify her enlistment, but she was not making enough for her expenses at all. So as Keegan mentioned, she was friends with none other than Paul fucking Revere. Um, Listen, my friend, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. In case you needed a refresher of who that motherfucker is. Okay. The British are coming. The British are coming. Yeah, exactly. So Revere also wrote on her behalf to the government requesting that she be awarded her pension. And this is what he said. I have been induced to inquire her situation and character since she quit the male habit and soldier's uniform for the more decent apparel of her own gender. Humanity and justice obliges me to say that every person with whom I have conversed about her, and it is not a few, to speak of her as a woman with handsome talents, good morals, a dutiful wife, and an affectionate parent. So he really was saying, like, look, she did this thing. She just really wanted to fight for her country, but she fully understands, like, where her place is now. Um, Which angers me because, of course, I feel like women should it's, be able to fight in the military yeah. but at the time i feel like they were she wa- she wanted and needed to get what she deserved right so i understand it was what she had to do it was like what they, she had to do they yeah. had to play this this kind of like you know game and i also think that it was it's speaking more to the people that he is writing to more in, than him yeah yes, in saying like Look, she she gets her. She's not above her station. She's not uppity. She's not. She's still a parent. Trying. She's a wife. Right. She you know. She's not still trying to be um, a man or yeah. whatever. Like she's a, a woman who is just trying to support her family. Exactly. 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 So on March eleventh, eighteen oh five, Congress approved a pension of four dollars a month, uh, which even at that time kind of sucks. But it was the first military pension for a woman. Um, in 1809, she sent another petition to Congress asking that her pension should be modified to start from her discharge date in 1783, which, like, at this time would have been 26 years of pay that she deserves. Right. At first, that was not approved, but if she had received the money at the time, she would have received $960, which in today's money would have been $13,800. Damn! Damn, girl! All right, so... The petition came before Congress again in 1816, so, like, seven years later. And she was awarded $76.80 a year, which is roughly $1,100 today. So, not nearly as much as it could have been. It's an improvement. And with this, she was able to repay all of her loans and make improvements on the family farm. So, the other thing that uh, Paul Revere really did for her was that he donated a lot of money to her. Uh, He loaned a lot of money to her. And she was always very, very thankful. You know, the letters that they wrote each other were very affectionate and very friendly. And she was so thankful for him to for doing what everything that he did. So she fully paid back all of her debt to yeah. Paul Revere. And you could tell in the letters, because they have um, on some of these websites where you can do research about her, yeah. they have these letters where she's asking for help from him. And you can tell so much the that The tail she, is, like, between her legs. She does not yeah. want to have to... She is, you know, she's prideful, and she's having to set her pride aside. To, I think one letter actually said, like, in 18th century speak, so I, I in words that are definitely more flowery than I'm going to yeah. use. But she basically said, like, I asked you 99 times, and you've given it to me 99 times, and I'm sorry to have, have to ask for the 100th. Yeah. Which is just like, oh, my I know, heart. I know, I read that one, too. I was like, <laughs> baby girl, you're okay, you're gonna be fine. Um, 
Okay, so at age 66, she came down with yellow fever. She died on April 29, 1827, and was buried at Rock Ridge Cemetery in Sharon, Massachusetts, which is where she lived with her husband and her family. In commemoration of her, she has a statue in front of the Sharontown Public Library. There's the Deborah Sampson Park, and the Deborah Sampson Gannett House uh, is preserved, along with all the farmland surrounding it. I want to see it. that. I do, too, really badly. And uh, Nothing's better than going into old houses. I know. I went to the George Washington Carver Museum, <gasps> which is in Neosho, Missouri, which is like Ooh. a small place in Missouri, and they have his house like, yeah. that he grew up in in Missouri that's I went preserved. to Judy Garland's like, house. This is the best thing ever. Yeah, it's <laughs> so cool. It's so cool. So I would love to do that one day. Everything is protected, which is great. And as of 2000, the town flag of Plimpton, Massachusetts, incorporates Samson as the official heroine of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Yes! Yes, queen! All right, so now I want to touch on one more thing before we move on to Keegan's story. So something that was really heavy in my mind as I was reading all these stories was that we just got done with Pride Month. Yes. Today is July 1st when we are recording. Pride Month has officially ended. But because we've been doing so much research on the LGBTQ community, Mm -hmm. it was very much in the forefront of my mind. And I'm like, I'm wondering how historians have viewed this story, you know? Yes. Have they made speculation about her being a lesbian? Have they made speculation about her being trans? I'm sure all of those things. All of those things are true. So, this is really interesting, and this made me excited, and I want to read all these books, and I want to learn more. So, there is a descendant of Samson's. His name is Alex Myers. He is a writer, a trans rights advocate, and the first openly trans student at Harvard University. Okay. Like, that's her descendant. I think that's so badass. Yeah, that's super cool. So, he has really always been very connected to this story, especially being a trans man, uh, hearing the story of this kind of woman who had to gender bend a bit to be able to fight for her country. So, of course, he's felt very, very connected to his story. He's written um, books and articles and all this stuff and really knows knows his shit. It's interesting. So she wrote a memoir in 1797 where apparently she just, like, lied a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so apparently she claimed to have fought in Yorktown, but, like, that was a year before her signature appeared on any, like, military papers and all this stuff. Um, so he kind of kind of outs her a little bit there. Oh, by the way, this guy's book is called Revolutionary. So as far as being uh, portrayed as a lesbian in Howard Mann's book, Uh the guy... Was that the same? No, that was Herman Mann. I wonder if they got the name wrong. She brags a lot about how often girls fell in love with her, but I think... And some people have taken that as like, oh, she liked having attention from women, but really I think it was like, look at how well I passed as like a good-looking dude. I think it was more of that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, and again, not to do a lot of speculation, but I can imagine if you are a woman that's not deemed to be physically attractive necessarily in that time period by men. Yeah. Um, it probably would have been flattering for her because she'd probably never really experienced that kind of, like, attention. people fawning over you, that kind of, like, attention. Yeah. And w- I don't know that that necessarily speaks to her sexuality or no, gender or No, I don't think like it that. does. I don't think it does at all. And a lot of people think that she was possibly transgender or at least, you know, non-binary, maybe somewhere on the spectrum. But this is something that uh, Myers wrote in his book. Uh, He says, but the more I wrote about her world, it seems to me that she was not really choosing between being a man and being a woman. I think she was choosing to be enslaved or free. Yeah. To be a woman at the time was to have no freedoms. 
I think by disguising herself as a man, it was less of her saying, I want to live as a man, and more that she wanted to have personal freedoms and independence. I don't think she was genderqueer, but certainly gender transgressive. She wanted to do things that women weren't allowed to do. So for people who are hearing this and maybe that was their thought, and maybe you didn't have that thought, but because all of the stuff that I've been reading for the last month was so in the forefront of my mind. I was curious about how people have yeah. perceived her. And I th- I think that what he states is very uh, poignant, very true, very powerful about the fact that it wasn't about being a man. It was about getting your power and fighting for your country. And she did what she wanted to do and that she felt and was having, right. And having some options and independence. Like, even if you even if she wasn't didn't feel particularly strongly or wasn't like particularly super patriotic like men had options and choices in far, as far as like how to make money and and earn a life for yourself they had choices to go to school right. she couldn't go to school when she was younger they had the choice to start their own job their own work she really didn't have that kind of choice they she, men had the choice to join the military and right. fight for the revolution and, something that she did feel really strongly about and joining the military was also just a, a way of getting. It's the same as today, where like yeah. you were provided with that pension. Should yep. you per, which should you survive? Yeah. the war. You were provided some financial stability that women. It just wasn't an option for them. There nope. was just no. There weren't a and lot she of good had options. To, she had to fend for herself. There right. was no. I mean, she did get married. She got married to somebody who did, who didn't have a lot of money. She married for love. Didn't marry for money. You know. So she knew that she had to take care of herself because at a young age, by the time she was ten, she had been moved around three times. Right. She knew that if she was going to rely on anyone in this world, it was herself. And I just think that the speculation, we we really can't speculate on who or what she would be if she was alive in the 21st century because who knows right. like she may know, have just been a, a, a female military officer yeah, you know what i mean yeah, like she we, may have just been in the army as a female yeah, she wouldn't we just necessarily don't know be gender bent her motivations i wish we did i wish she had been able to like be free about writing about things like that or her her motivations or her thoughts or her feelings so that well, she had to disguise them understanding but yeah we yeah. don't we don't know because she, she had to yeah. um kind of keep those to herself and you know for self preservation yeah. purposes but still regardless of any of her motivations like this is a woman who was injured twice Yep. Two separate times. Yeah. Like while she had a rough go of it. For yeah. Real. Yeah. I mean, and was obviously acutely aware and very she put herself at high, high risk. Yeah. Um I mean, think about just really like stop and imagine how high risk you would have had to have felt like you were in to walk away with two musket balls stuck in your leg. Yeah. And fish it out yourself because yeah, you're that, that afraid of discovery. Yeah. Like you That's- know, uh, I would have been like, I'm done. I'm you found Never out. Mind. It's good. It's good, guys. It's fine. I'm just gonna back away quietly. I'll take whatever consequences. Just get these musket balls out of my leg yeah. and let me go home. Yeah, you know. But she was just she was that concerned. So I mean, that really speaks to how much risk she was she was in. Yeah, or how much fear she felt about discovery. So yeah, Deborah Samson Gannett, we applaud. Yeah, you. yeah. Hats off to you, Debbie. Deb, Deb, Debbie. <laughs> All right, should we take a short break? Yeah, let's and take a go break. back to the story. Yes, we, All will, right, we will get to my story after this word from our friends. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. We're two academic sisters. And we host a podcast called What's Her Name? 
What's Her Name podcast tells you the stories of fascinating women that you've never heard of. We're unearthing the histories of really interesting women that have slipped through the cracks of our collective history. We add era-appropriate music. We interview really fascinating experts, everyone from professors to authors to the manager of a brothel museum. <laughs> we cover it all. So give it a listen. What's Her Name podcast.com. Okay. All right, girl. So, we are going to talk about another person from Massachusetts. <gasps> tell me. Tell a very me. very Massachusetts-themed episode. Yes. So, if you're from Massachusetts, this one's for you. What's up? <laughs> um, <laughs> we are going to talk about Elizabeth Freeman. Ooh. Who's also known as Mum Bet. She this was... Sounds, I, I, this sounds familiar, and I, I'm excited to discover why it, that sounds familiar. Okay. Um, she was... An enslaved African-American woman, and she was the first one, the first African-American to file and win um, a freedom suit mm. in Massachusetts. So she she went to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, mm -hmm. and they found in, in favor that slavery was inconsistent with the 1780 Massachusetts State Constitution. Awesome. So, all right, let's get into this. Tell me all about it, Keegan. I'm comfortable... <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> All right. So Freeman was born. Um, she left no written records because she was illiterate. Yeah. Um, so her history has kind of been pieced together by people that knew her or historians or biographers or um, people who to whom she told her story. Right. So they kind of like pieced her, her life together. So she was born into slavery in 1744 at the farm of Peter Hogeboom in um, Claverick, New York. Is that right? Claverick, yes, it looks right. Yeah. Um, where she was given the name Bet. Uh, when Hogboom's daughter Hannah married John Ashley of Sheffield, Massachusetts, Hogboom gave Bet around who was around seven years old at that time to Hannah and her husband as like a wedding gift. So fun. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, hey, remember when we used to give people as presents? Well, did you read Invention of Wings yet? No, but I know that that's what happened. Yes. <laughs> it's like, happy birthday, here's a person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was trying to explain that to Theo last night, because we were talking about um, Alexander Hamilton and how there were slaves where he was from, and that's like, he saw how they were being mistreated, and that's what made him, like, fight against slavery. Yeah, and so I, I was trying to explain to him that, like, look... There was a time where certain people were not seen as people, and it's such. It, I love that it's such a foreign concept to him, where he's like, "Wait, what? How? Why?" He was like, "Wait, uh, then what were they seen as?" Like, it was I just, don't get it. I, I brain doesn't compute. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Side story. No, no problem. So she was with them um, until 1781. So that was from 1744 to 1781. She was with the Ashleys. And during that time, she had a child who she named Little Bet, which oh, I think is adorable. Baby. So there's Bet and Little Bet. I like the name Bet as a nickname for Elizabeth because yeah. my mom is Elizabeth and she's Liz. So I've always wondered, like, oh, if I were to name a kid after my mom, like, what? I would want like a, a different nickname. I knew a girl who went by Lizbeth. Lizbeth. Yeah. Yeah. I love Busy Phillips, so I like Busy too. Busy's but I like too. But I like Bet. There I think are that's so really many cute. like ways to break down Elizabeth. Like, yeah, there is. Different... Well, my mom's nickname was Little Bit. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, so that reminds me of Little Bet. Little Bet. Um, so she's said to have married during this time, but there's no marriage record. Right. So it's it's unknown whether or not were but... were marriages. Sorry to keep interrupting, but were marriages at that time between slaves were they 
legally binding. No. I didn't think so. It was more of just, like, a ceremony and, like, right. a, a representation. Which is partially how, like, jumping the broom became, like, a thing, because it was, like, part something to, like, kind of, like, symbolize your union and, like, because they could not be legal, so it was right. a kind of, like, a thing that was, like... Uh, to help make it more legitimate. What is jumping the broom? Um, jumping the broom is a, a like a lot of African Americans still do that at weddings. I explained this whole thing to Anthony recently. It's it, it was a thing that slaves would do. They don't really know the origins. Some people say that there are origins that go back to Africa, and some say not. But it was it was just kind of like a ceremonial thing. I can't remember exactly what it represented. But after you did your ceremony, the husband and wife would hold hands and jump over a broom I have seen together. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 something that happens in a lot of, like, African-American communities even now. But it's seen as very much an African-American tradition rather yeah. than a purely African tradition. Like, I don't yeah. know. If you are a... It's more of, like, a slave... Uh, ritual that we've carried yeah. over, kind of reclaimed for ourselves. Um, yeah. So, if you... I'm curious about this. If you are a black person living in another country, like England or wherever, like, let us know if that's something that you guys do there, because yeah. it is something that I know African Americans still do yeah. in in our country today. That's so cool. So yeah. it's a really cool kind of, like, traditional I like that. Thing. I love it. I, think I it's love great. traditions. They're Me so too. Great. Yeah, I love, like, cultural, culturally specific traditions like yeah. that. I think they're great. And I will do more research on that, because... I'm sure I don't there's even, a lot of symbolism. There and is, deeper and, yeah, and meaning. I'm not even fully in. I do know that it was, I think, initially something that was made to kind of, there are things that I've read that say that it was kind of used to degrade slaves in a way. And so they were kind of taking the power back? It was reclaimed. Back. Yeah, it was reclaimed. Dig it. I love it. Um, okay. So, there, we're not sure if she got married or not, but they do say that there are some historians that say that her husband died during the Revolutionary War. So he okay. went off as, you know, a black man to fight in the Revolutionary War and died during the war. Okay. So... Throughout her life, she she was really strong-willed. So even mm-hmm. with... She had been with Hannah Ashley, her mistress, since she was seven. Yeah. And she was very... She came into conflict with Ashley a lot. Because Ashley was raised in a very strict... Uh, or sorry, Hannah Ashley was raised in a very strict uh, Dutch culture in New York. And at one point, around 1780, Bet prevented Hannah from striking another servant girl mm. um, with a heated shovel. Ooh. Can you imagine? Nope. So she can't. So um, Bet kind of put herself between herself and the servant yeah. girl and received a really deep wound to her arm. Ooh. And as the wound healed, this is so badass and I love that she did this. Yeah. As the wound was healing, she left it uncovered. She didn't yeah. cover it up. She didn't wrap it up. Yeah. And so when people asked her about it, yeah. she would just say, ask my mistress. Oh. You know, because she was like... so awesome. Yeah, she wanted people to see that she was being treated Mistreated, really... Mistreated, yeah. ...really harshly. And she was quoted at one point as saying, Madam never again laid her hand on Lizzie. I had a bad arm all winter, but Madam had the worst of it. I never covered the wound, and when people said to me before Madam, Betty, what ails your arm? I only answered, ask Mrs., which was this... Uh, I'm surprised you didn't get... Which was Punished the slave? For and, saying that, yeah, she said, "Which was the slave and which was the missus?" <gasps> <laughs> because Ooh. she she realized that she had some control. And, like, yes, some power. I'm surprised though that like by saying something so like with such attitude that she Sassy. wasn't hurt even more. Yeah, I imagine it was kind of complicated because even though 
you treat someone really harshly and they're your slave and you definitely treat them like your slave, there has to be some kind of, like, connection to someone who you've, who's been in your house since they were seven. Yeah, maybe. So maybe it was just one of those things where she... Was, like... And maybe she didn't want to be... Because this is still Massachusetts, so, right? Like, slavery is still legal, but you're still in the North. Yeah. So I imagine you also don't want to be seen as, like, a cruel slave owner. That's true. You That's know, true. like, and so, because even by doing this and, like, kind of revealing to people, she obviously knew that people were going to be judging her yeah. mistress for this yeah, kind of Yeah, she knew what she was doing. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Um. So, John Ashley, which is her master at this time, was a Yale-educated lawyer. He was a wealthy landowner, businessman, and so his house was a state of, like, many political discussions, and they think that it was the location where they gathered to sign the Sheffield's Resolves, which predated the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. And in 1780, Freeman heard the newly ratified Massachusetts Constitution read at a public gathering. So she couldn't read. Yeah. You know, but she was I'm out and about yep. doing her thing, and someone was reading it aloud, which was something that people did a lot back then because a lot of people were illiterate. Yeah. Um, so they were reading it aloud, and in it it said, All men are born free and equal and have certain natural, essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, in fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. She's like, oh, really? Yeah, she was like, oh, um, I didn't know this. This is the thing? Okay, this is the this thing. This is the thing, and this does not apply to my life. Right. So, uh, uh, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> so, she was inspired by this, and she went and sought counsel from Theodore Sedgwick, who was a young abolitionist lawyer. And so she was like, I'm going to... Is wanna, a white man? He's a white man. Yeah. yeah. And she was like, I'm going to sue for freedom because this says that I have the right to be free. So um, according to Catherine Sedgwick's account, who I think was either Theodore's wife or daughter, mm-hmm. I'm not sure, I can't remember, she told him, I heard that paper read yesterday that says all men are created equal and that every man has the right to freedom. I'm not a dumb critter. Won't the law give me my freedom? (laughs) So after much, um, so like I love this because I'm not a dumb critter. No, you're not, girl. No, I mean, and and truly, like for her to even have put this together at this time with literally no education. Yeah, you are smart. Yeah, she's super smart and brave. My God. Yeah, and wanted it badly. Yeah, for real. She's like, I'm done with this shit. Yeah. So he kind of, like, molded over, thought about it, and then eventually accepted her case and was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to do this. So he took on her case and took on another, I guess she had kind of, like, spread the word yeah. where she was to the other slaves. And so she, her case was taken on as well as another slave of the Ashleys named Brom. So Brom and Bet. Okay. Um, so he enlisted the, a- the aid of Tapping Reeve. What a name. Tapping Reeve. Tapping. Tapping. I like That's so many name. good names today. I know, I know. Um, and he was the founder of the Litchfield Law School, which was one of America's favorite, uh, favorite, America's <laughs> first law schools. Um, favorite and first. This is our favorite. Um, so they were two of the top lawyers in Massachusetts. And, you know, Cedric actually went on to serve as a United States senator, which Woo! is fascinating and awesome. Go said. So the case of Brahmin Bet v. Ashley was heard in August 1781 before the County Court of Common Pleas in Great Barrington. 
gosh, everything's so fancy. Great Baddington. Um, Cedric and Reeve asserted that the constitutional provision that all men are born free and equal officially abolished slavery in the state. When the jury ruled in Betts' favor, she became the first African-American woman to be set free under the Massachusetts state constitution. Wait, is that when it was, when slavery was turned over that... Well, it seems like you could have sued for your freedom. It wasn't turned over necessarily in the state yet, um, I don't think. That's just kind of how it sounded, so I wanted to clear it up. Yeah, I'm not actually sure. I'm not actually sure when it became... I'm sure that this case was instrumental in setting precedent. Very much so, yeah. And I'm sure if it didn't happen right now, it had to have followed shortly after. Right. Because there was no way that they could say that the Constitution was basically like, hmm... We shouldn't be having slaves and allowing yeah. it to go on for, yeah. for very much longer. But, I mean, also, if you're a slave who doesn't have the means to a lawyer or right. uh, maybe even feel some sort of obligation to your, to your master, to yeah, your slave yeah. owner, I feel like there probably was still a lot of people out there that were too scared well, to I do mean, what she did. And I know that just because there's a Supreme Court ruling... It doesn't necessarily change the law yeah. everywhere just yeah. because of that. But it, and what for it, each individual case. Right. And so what it does do is set precedent, yes. which probably made it... I mean, once that happens, you're chipping away at, at yeah. that institution altogether. So I'm right. sure that that was the case here. So the jury found that Brom and Bet are not, nor were they at the time of purchase of the original writ, the legal Negro of said John Ashley. The court assessed damages of 30 shillings and awarded both plaintiffs uh, compensation for their labor. Woo! Which is amazing. That's so amazing. And John Ashley originally appealed the decision, but a month later he dropped his appeal, apparently having decided the court's ruling on constitutionality of slavery was final and binding. So Mm -hmm. he was at first like, no, fuck this, I want to keep my slaves. But then at some point was like, you know, the law is a law. Yeah. <laughs> he was still like a man of the law and was kind yeah. of like, well, you know what? Fair is fair. And like, this is what happened here. Yeah. So he initially tried to get Bet back and was like, well, we'll pay you. Like, yeah. we'll start paying you now. But if she's you wanna... like, yeah. <laughs> really? Mm, mm, I'm going to um, say no. No, thank you. So after the ruling, Bet took on the name Elizabeth Freeman, which was a very common. She's a free man. That's exactly right. So, I mean, that was a very common thing that ex-slaves did because they did not have a last name. Yeah. And they didn't want to take on the last name of their... A lot of times, they didn't want to take on the last name of their masters. Yep. So they would make their own last name. And oftentimes, it was Freeman. Yeah. So that was the last name she chose for herself. So he did ask her back to work, but she was like, no, thank you. You know what I am going to do is go work for um, Sedgwick, my lawyer. Yeah. Because he's bomb and he helped me out of the situation. So yeah. she went on to go live with Sedgwick and his family and worked for them as like a nurse and a house cleaner for wages. Like, yeah. Was paid. Um, working in his household. So she worked for the family until 1808 as a senior servant servant and governess to the Sedgwick children, who called her Mum Bet. <laughs> the Sedgwick children included Catherine Sedgwick, so that is who that is, who became a well-known author and wrote an account of the governess's life. From the time Freeman gained her freedom, she became widely recognized and in demand for her skills as a healer, midwife, and nurse. 
After the Cedric children were grown, Freeman moved into her own house on Cherry Hill in Stockbridge near her daughter, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. So she had such a really full life living with the Cedrics. Like, they loved her. The children loved her. She was able to be free. She was free, and she was such an instrumental part of um, this household and this family. And I love this quote by her that she had, uh, I think maybe it was in Catherine Cedric's book, Uh uh, where she says, Any time, any time while I was a slave, if one minute's freedom had been offered to me, and I had been told I must die at the end of that minute, I would have taken it. Just to stand one minute in God's air, a free woman, I would. So she, like, I mean, that's the thing that gets me when people want to talk about how, like, some slaves were happy and they were okay being slaves and it was fine. And it's like, what she just said is, if I could have had one minute of freedom and then died, I would have taken that one minute of freedom and death rather than... Live my life as a slave. Live the rest of my life as property. You have to think of this, too, is that there is a lot of... Stockholm Syndrome at the time. Like I was saying, where there are people where they feel like that is all there is. So it's not real happiness. It It is being enslaved. It is being owned. And sometimes you have to trick yourself, convince yourself that you're happy, that you're okay. Well, I mean... In order to survive. I mean, and anyone who's... And this is totally not comparable. I'm not trying to compare these things. But like anyone who's been in a shitty relationship will tell you, like, the fear of, yeah, you know the relationship is shitty, but, like, the fear, the fear of what leaving. lies outside of that is is a lot of times what keeps people in relationships exactly. that aren't good. And it's the same kind of thing where it's like, yeah, it's you know... It's on an even larger huge. scale, because I mean, if times, they were to go, where are they going to go? They're exactly. not treated well. No so one, it's like, at least I have a place to sleep. At least I have food. At least right. I have something. There even are so if it's many horrible. uncertainties on the other side of yep. that. Of, of being a slave that make it, like, so difficult to make that decision because you do have to think, like, well, okay, what's going to happen to me? Yeah. If I'm... I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a job. I yeah. don't know if I'm going to be able to support myself. I've never had to. I don't have the skills. I'm not equipped. So yeah. it's not about being happy, happy being a slave. It's about coping and <clears throat> and about... Surviving. Surviving. Yeah. It, you know, we do... Our minds do things to protect us right. in order to survive. Agreed. Agreed. So, by the way, that book is just called Mumbet, The Life and Times of Elizabeth Freeman by Catherine Sedgwick. Yes. Definitely. Um, I, I would love to read that. Definitely pick that up. I find this woman so fascinating. So fascinating because what a scary thing to do. Because uh-huh. also, I think it needs to be put into perspective of, like... Imagine taking your employer to court, yeah. right, and still having to work in that job. Mm-hmm. This is taking your master, someone who legally owns you, who could legally kill you. Yeah, like you are, you are taking them to court while it's, still having to work in their house as their property. I mean, that's unthinkable. It's insane and horrifying. But she clearly had the gall conviction. You know, she yeah. was like, I mean, what she did when she was struck and left her wound you know, open, you know, she right. was very strong-willed and, right. and it makes me believe unfuckable that, with. Yeah. It makes me unfuckable with, it makes me believe that quote that she said that I really do believe that she would rather have died than have lived the rest of her life as a slave because who else would do something like this? You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's a desperate act. And it she is. probably knew that because of the way that she was, that she had to be that person to do it. Right. She yeah. knew that was her calling. And I would really like to know how much like having, 
a daughter of her own colored her need to kind of like be like we need to get out of this situation i don't want my child to have to live yeah. the same kind of life that i did yeah so her her death uh freeman's age was never known but she was estimated to be about 85 on her tombstone okay she died in december of 1829 and was buried in the sedgwick family plot Aww. in stockbridge Massachusetts. massachusetts she's the only to this day she's the only non-sedgwick to be buried in that plot. Wow. So that's how much they... They, they loved her. They treated her like family. Like, she was part of their family. So we're going to take a road trip to Massachusetts. Yes. Right? Yeah. Right now? Gosh, let's get I in mean, the car. Look, it's a 4th of July weekend. Let's just go. would love to go to Massachusetts, period, because I want to go to Salem. I want to do all of this other stuff. Like, I think, yes, yes, Keegan, and yes. Okay, when we, like, make enough money off of this shit... We like, can tour? We need to do a tour yes. of all of this shit, and then record episodes there. Agreed. Agreed, agreed. Okay. Guys, this is gonna happen someday. I don't know when, but someday it's Some, gonna happen. Someday. Um, okay, so she was buried. She's the only non-Cedric to be buried in this plot, and they provided her a tombstone, which, again, a expensive yes. venture at this time. Uh-huh. Um, especially I mean, even for, for some people now, they don't get a real tombstone. Right. It's expensive, and I've seen a picture of it, and it's beautiful, um, but this is what it says. It says... Elizabeth Freeman. So they paid to have this inscribed. Yeah. I also want to say that. Like, it's not like yeah. just a tombstone that says Elizabeth Freeman on it. It's yeah. inscribed. It says, Elizabeth Freeman, also known by the name Mum Bet, died on December 28, 1829. Her supposed age was 85 years. She was born a slave and remained a slave for nearly 30 years. She could neither read nor write, yet in her own sphere, she had no superior or equal. She neither wasted time nor property. She never violated a trust nor failed to perform a duty. In every situation of domestic trial, she was the most efficient helper and the tenderest friend. Good mother, farewell. I want her to hug me. Because, can you... She had to have been just the most, like... God, I mean, like, it makes my, it gives me goosebumps a little bit I to know, think of. I know, I'm just, I'm sitting here hugging myself, picturing her hugging me, because she just sounds like the warmest, most lovely yeah. person. I mean, and to inscribe something like this on someone's tombstone, that's written by people who were hurting, who were sad that they lost someone. Yes, yes. So, like, that is, you know, that's And they not, wanted her to be known right. forever. And for, for being such a tender, wonderful woman. Like, you know, having recently been to a funeral, I can say that this was written by people who were sad at the loss of yes. this person, who loved this person very much. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's Mum Bet, and I I've not it. known about her, but Mom. when I couldn't do, um, when I couldn't do Debbie, I was like, okay, you know what? I want to find a woman of color from the a revolution. Yes! Because I love it. there had to have been some really amazing ones, and I found Elizabeth Freeman, and I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad I'm that we so did this glad. episode. I'm so glad. And I want to keep doing more. I mean, I always, it's like I start on this, you know, adventure, and I love, like, whenever I Google, and then also, like, people have already looked up, or have uh, also looked up these people. You're and I'm like, like, yes, please. Yes, I need to know about all of them. Yeah. So, I mean... I, I'm looking forward to doing my own research on my own time and learning more and more about these people. Um, and again, look, if I kind of compiled from a couple of different websites and, like, copy-pasted sections to yeah. read or um, into my notes, so if 
any of this, if you know any additional information that we didn't cover, or if any of our information, if you know something that's alternative to the things that we have shared here, yeah. um, please, please feel free to email us. Let us know. We're always open and interested. Yeah, and in, want to know as much as yeah, we can. Yeah, and what you guys have to say. So go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can DM us. Our Instagram is where it's at. Like, that's where we put most of our stuff, and um, that is at Angry Neighborhood Feminist on Instagram. We've been doing a lot more on Twitter. Um, when Keegan says we, she means her. <laughs> uh, the podcast has been a lot more active on Twitter. Don't give me credit, girl. I haven't done shit. <laughs> um, so definitely follow us on Twitter. The more, I will say, like, that's what gets me motivated. Like, the more activity I see on Twitter, True. the more I... Same with the Facebook group. Right. Like, if I see activity on Twitter or Facebook... The more I want to engage. Yeah. So follow so, us on Twitter at Yamf Y A N F podcast mm-hmm. or on Facebook. Um, you can look up your Angry Neighborhood Feminist podcast Facebook group. It'll show up. Definitely follow us there. Yep. We have something exciting. Yes. Coming up yes. for you guys living in Los Angeles. Our dear, 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 dear friend Ariel is starting her own business venture. She is creating a tea and bookshop called The Swallow's Flight, and she is going to be having a pop-up event on July 14th, and we are going to be doing a mini-episode. Yes. Very mini. Very (laughs) mini. So the event is from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m., I believe, Mm -hmm. and we will be performing from... Performing, that seems weird. We will be doing our mini-episode from 3 to 3.30. Yes. Um, We are going to have to practice. We're going to have trial runs. We're going to have to record. Because we're doing another kind of book report style episode, and we yes. are going to try to record it so that we're gonna those talk, of you who can't make it can still hear it. Yes, and we're going to talk about our um, favorite literary feminists. So if that's something that you are interested in hearing, like who our favorite literary feminists are, definitely come out and support. For real. It is a $12 ticket to go, but, I mean, Arielle, we had a meeting and she was telling you about everything that's going to be happening, and it's amazing. So you do have to get, put, get your tickets ahead of time, because she's like, I'm going to make individual little teapots and blah, 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 and she's like, Everything is going to be so specific and cool and wonderful. You uh, can get your tickets at the door. You but can get your tickets, tickets at, at the door. door are fifteen dollars yes. rather than twelve. So. so to get tickets ahead of time, you can go to the link in our bio. I believe it's going to be in downtown LA, right? It is in downtown yeah. LA. So the link in our bio on Instagram. And Instagram, yes. So and we'll we'll start spamming it everywhere too. But it, it's going to be so much fun. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to meet people. We're going to be handing out stickers. And it's our first time ever doing any of this kind of stuff live. Yeah. So we're, we yeah. feel great So come out, appreciation. Get, a, get a sticker, get a selfie with us. I will be wildly overdressed for She's this event. She's going to a wedding. Because I'm going to a wedding after it. So what if I just showed up in sweats and a t-shirt? I will <laughs> um, walk out. I will walk out. Um, I'll just do it by myself. Um, yeah, so it's going to be really fun. So we will keep reminding you guys until the event happens. We would really love to see some of you guys there instead of just our friends and family. So if you're in the L.A. area, I mean, it really would be so cool to see yeah, some of you guys. absolutely. Let's see. What else? Oh, send us your sister solidarity stories, as always. Uh, send it through email. DM us on Instagram. Please uh, also rate and review us on iTunes. You guys are doing awesome with that. It really helps us so much. It really, really does. And it means so much to us when you guys reach out and do that. It feels like a a nice little hug from you guys. Uh, Anything else that we have to cover? I think that's it. I mean, yeah, that's it. I think that's it. All right, cool. So guys, happy 4th of July. We love you and we encourage you. 
to Rage On. Bye, guys. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.